Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back also to our students who were away on holiday. I uh, trust that you had a blessed time of rest and are ready for the second semester. Also thinking of those who this is their last semester and next year they're moving on to different things. Thinking of you as well and praying for you as you start the last chapter of your university career. Now with all that said, we continue tonight with 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and um Tonight, we, we continue from where we left off last week. Last week, I ended with a verse uh, that read, What do you wish? Which is the end of chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? If you weren't here last week, my, my last point was the need for discipline in the church. Paul now fleshes out that idea for us tonight and emphasizes once again the need for biblical church discipline within a local church. Now, a few questions that we can ask even in the beginning is, what happens when, a biblic, when biblical discipline does not characterize a local church? We believe, in fact, maybe let me say it this way. I believe that when you look for a good church to attend, look for a church that practices church discipline. If a church doesn't practice church discipline, then it, it may not be the church that you want to go to. So the question that we start in today is what happens when biblical discipline does not characterize local church? Now, obviously, there must be uh, moments for church discipline and not just church discipline all willy-nilly. But what happens when a church does not allow for a fear of God to govern its responses to sin? What happens when a church does not take sin seriously? Well, we get headlines. And today, today's sermon, in fact, um, I've titled it Headline Unchecked Sin Rocks the Local Church unchecked sin rocks the local church. If a church does not take sin seriously, it makes it to the newspapers. Here are a few actual articles that made it to the newspapers talking about churches. One of the articles and the, type, the headline of the article was this, U.S. Southern Baptist churches facing apocalypse over sexual abuse scandals. Another article read, church's founder resigns in March after the church said an internal investigation found he behaved inappropriately toward two women. Another article reads, bombshell megachurch documentary details sex scandals that battered celeb megachurch. Another headline wrote, Pastor admits affair with 16-year-old child. Now, there are other articles which probably don't make it to the paper, such as we also read of deacons who have had their hands in the offering basket for years, or a deacon who divorces his wife and marries a young lady in or from the Bible study. A.W. Tozer says this, the un 
the untended garden is soon overrun with weeds. The heart that fails to cultivate truth and root out error will soon be a wilderness. This is true of a local church that does not weed out sin from its midst. As we, as we heard of some of those headlines, I hope it made you feel uneasy. It should bring about a sense of disgust, a, a sense of disappointment, a, a sense of, of despair for the bride of Christ. But what about other headlines which probably will never make it to um, a newspaper, such as a couple in a local church moves in together, or a couple in the local church is found to be having casual sex, or a church member is found weakly drunk at the doorstep of their rear's door, or church member known for being vulgar and constantly swearing at taxi drivers or anyone who makes them angry and is frequently found in altercations, or church member divorces husband and marries the office partner. Church, as we observe this scene at Corinth, I, I pray that God would soften our hearts to once again get a, a sense of the sinfulness of sin and the need for us to repent of our sins and to quickly take sin to God. And if a member of our body is caught in sin, that we rebuke them graciously, we correct them in love for the sake of their souls and for the sake of our body. So that said, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we read from verses 1 to verse 8. 1 Corinthians 5, from verses 1 to verse 8. Verse 1 reads, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? And have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I am already, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the last day. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Verse 8, therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's pray together. God, we do come before you tonight praying, even as I've said in this introduction, that God, you, that you would soften our hearts. God, I pray even as I preach a sermon where we look at a, a sin law that was left to run rampant in the church, that God, this would not be true of us. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't be as proud 
That, God, we would humble ourselves and, and Lord, see sin as you see sin. So as you speak to us today, I, I, I pray, Father, that you would reveal in our hearts sin that we have covered. Sin that we have now justified as good. And Lord, if we know of a brother and sister who is living in unrepentant sin, won't you move us today to do the right thing in love and in grace to go to them, Lord, and show them their fault so that that they could be restored to fellowship with you. God, I pray for myself as I speak. Lord, I don't speak here, Lord, under the assumption of the guise that, Lord, I'm perfect and I'm one who is without sin. So I also pray for myself that, God, you'd continue to cleanse me of my sin. Help me, Father, even as I come and preach your word, to be one who has his sins forgiven. Lord, one who constantly is checking his soul to see if there be any wickedness in me. That, God, as you use me as your servant, I may be a servant who is present before you, an instrument which has been cleansed by your blood. So, God, won't you bless our time together tonight? And I do pray, Lord, that there would be repentance where needed, and Lord, conviction by your Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So the first thing I'd like us to consider tonight is a reputation worthy of shame. A reputation worthy of shame. We saw in verse 1, the Apostle Paul said, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. What are you generally known for? We generally describe people or places for what they are known for. Here are a few examples. When somebody asks you, hey, have, have you seen Isaac? What do you normally say if you, don't, if, if you know of two Isaacs? You say, which Isaac? And then the person will say, the one who plays the guitar or the pastor who plays the guitar. And you will respond by saying, oh, that one, I know who he is. Or someone comes to you and says, hey, have you seen or do you know Mukona? And you'll ask the question, which Mukona? And then, he, then the person responds by saying, the one who is Mr. Couple Goals. And then you'll say, yeah, I know that one. I have seen him. Or if someone comes to you and asks, hey, have you seen or do you know Tolamo? And you say, which one? And you'll say, the loud one. (laughs) You say, yes, I know him. I've seen him. He's over there or over there. Or to talk of places, someone asks you, hey, have you been to the movies at Sterling? And you're like, where's Sterling? What's that place? And then they say, yeah, the movie place that has those big rats. Oh, yes, I know that place. All right. I'm sure you get the point. If we had to ask people at Corinth and people around to to describe this church that was at Corinth, if someone came and said, hey, have you heard about that church? This is how it would be described. They would say, which one? The answer would be the one that allowed a man to sleep with his father's wife. This had become its reputation. It was known for being the church that accepted such a sin. Paul says it is actually reported. TMZ has the scoop. Daily Sun is writing about it. Twitter is tweeting about it, and it's the number one hashtag. The news are talking about the story that brought great shame to the church. In short, the streets were talking to the astonishment of the Apostle Paul. 
what was the problem? There is sexual immorality among you, he says in verse 1, and of a kind even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. There was sexual immorality in the church. The word that Paul uses for sexual immorality is the word porneia. It originally was used to specifically describe the practice of consorting with prostitutes and eventually came to mean habitual immorality. What we have here in this passage is not a one-night stand. What we have in this passage is the verb is in the present and is in the present tense and it is in the active voice meaning that this was an ongoing and active sinful relationship. This was disgraceful. It was a shock to Paul because what was reported was to their shame true. Friends, you're not talking about a common sin. This was an incredible act of wickedness. A man in the church did not just fornicate once, but he had either married or was living with his father's wife with whom he continued to fornicate with. Two observations we need to make before we continue. Number one, the father's wife or the woman in the story is not mentioned and there is no record of disciplinary action taken against her, so it can be concluded that she may have not been a believer because they are not called to discipline her. A second observation can be made here is that Paul does not call this sin adultery, but by implication he calls it fornication. So it could be that the father remarries after this man's mother died and the son, the man mentioned in the story, falls into a relationship with his stepmother, possibly leading to the divorce of his father and this woman. Church, this was bad. This was stuff you'd see on Dr. Phil or even on Ricky Lake. This was bad. John MacArthur, commenting on this passage, says, We have a situation here of sexual immorality that was actually shocking the pagans. Have you ever heard unbelievers come to you and say, How, Mzalwani? <laughs> also you. <laughs> this was shocking unbelievers. John MacArthur continues to say, Now when the sin of the church shocks the world, we've got a problem. Friends, you need to understand that it was hard to shock the Corinthians when it came to sexual sin because the city itself was a cesspool, a cesspool of sexual perversions of many kind. In Corinth, there was a temple that was built on a hill that housed the Greek goddess Aphrodite. She was known as the Greek goddess of love. I love how Alistair Begg changed it. He says she should have been called the Greek goddess of lust. Because those who served in her courts were prostitutes who served in the streets of Corinth once darkness fell. And yet, the church was even able to surprise a city that was dominated by sex like this one. The problem was in the church. The cancer was in the church. The problem was sexual immorality in the form of incest. Now, when we talk about incest, the Bible is not quiet when it comes to incest. Consider Leviticus 18 from verse 4. Leviticus 18 from verse 4. 
And the word of God says, you must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. I, I am the Lord. Verse 6, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Verse 8 addresses our passage. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. What brought shame to the church at Corinth was that incest was condemned by the Bible, but incest was also condemned by Roman law. So you didn't have to be a Christian to see that this sin was disgusting and abhorrent. You see, being lax about sin doesn't just leave you looking like the world. But at times, it leaves you looking worse than the world. So why couldn't the church identify or deal with this sin? The Apostle Paul says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 5, he says, And you are arrogant. There was arrogance in the camp. It was bad that the church had sin of this kind in its ranks, but it was worse that the church tolerated the sin. Paul says, you are proud. You see, the truth about a proud man is that he either wholly overlooks his sin or he will craftily disguise his faults or he will work hard to transform his blemish into some sort of beauty. Paul asked the church, shouldn't you rather be in mourning See, the word he uses for mourning is the same word that we use for grieving over a loved one who has died. He's asking the church, shouldn't you be grieving like you've lost someone dear to you over the fact that there is sin that is unrepentant in your midst? He says, shouldn't you be grieving that there is disgrace in the church? There is a brother who is overwhelmed by sin. There is a stench of death in the camp. Shouldn't you be mourning? And yet you are proud. The reason why the church did not put the sinner out is because they themselves were consumed by sin. If we as a church are consumed by sin, there is no way we'll be able to point out the sin of another because we ourselves are blinded and living in unrepentant sin. This church was consumed by sinful factions and their sinful factions led to sinful behavior. The main thing was no longer the main thing and so they overlooked sin. They were not grieved by the fact that the evil one had a foothold in the life of a member of the body of Christ. In fact, they went on as if it was business as usual. They tolerated and celebrated sin. Church, we need to learn and understand that a high view of self will always lead to a low view of God. 
Whereas the Bible calls us to have a low and humble view of self and a high view of God. It is from a high view of God that will lead us to a hatred of sin and intolerance of anything that grieves his holy name. Remember in chapter 4 verse 7 when the apostle Paul talking about the arrogance of the church asks these questions. It says, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And now he goes on to make a further point in this passage that, hey, you actually have no reason to boast for you have actually become a shame. Some of the symptoms we need to look at as we consider our own lives as we search our hearts to see, is there arrogance in my heart that may be blinding my eyes to my own sin? I have a few points that I jotted down. Some symptoms you need to search for in your own life is, number one, you follow man and not God. How do we know that you follow man? Well, from 1 Corinthians, it it means that you pay more attention when so-and-so preaches, but you shut off when so-and-so preaches. That was one of the symptoms of the arrogance of this church. The second thing is, you believe that no one has the right to point out your sin. Number three... Only people with a certain status have the privilege to speak into your life. How about number four? You believe that you are fine on your own. You don't need to let people in your life. You don't need the local church to, to be coming in and meddling with your business. These were symptoms seen in the church at Corinth. And it brought them to this point. And the question tonight is, does this describe you? How should we respond to unrepentant sin found in the church? Well, I've titled our second point, Discipline Makes for Healthy Churches. Discipline Makes for Healthy Churches. Verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, "For, For my part... Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit, as one who is present with you in this way. I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the last day. Lehman writes in his book on church membership, he writes that discipleship is linked to church discipline. This is what he says. He says to be discipled is among other things to be disciplined. For in church discipline, we are correcting sin and pointing the disciple toward a walk in righteousness. The point of discipline is to expose sin. It is to warn of the judgment of God that is to come. It is to save the believer by snatching them out of the fire, as Jude writes. It is to protect the rest of the body from the spread of this cancerous sin. And lastly, it is to present a good witness for Jesus as salt and light to the world. 
No church should allow sin to go unchecked. Cancer is a great example for us to get a better understanding of the effects of sin in the local church. If you had found a tumor in the body of someone whom you loved dearly, you wouldn't just casually ignore it. You move with haste to have this disease checked that the tumor may be removed or that it may be shrinked with chemo. Church, if we do not move with haste to have this disease of sin removed, death is inevitable. And don't forget that as sin spreads, so will this death spread. So in light of this, it must be said that no one in the local church is immune from discipline. No one. We should not give people a a, a get-out-of-jail-free card for being caught in unrepented sin. They must be disciplined for the sake of their souls. Paul says, Though I am not there as your father in the faith, know that I am there in spirit, and I have already passed judgment by the authority given to me by God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the one who has been doing this. He says in verses 4 and 5, So when you are assembled, I am with you in spirit. Other commentators say because they had this letter or because they had what he'd already written, they could use it as the authority that he agrees. He agrees with them that this member must be disciplined. He goes on to say, and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present. Remember, whatever you bound on earth will also be bound on heaven. And then he goes on in verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the last day. Now, it's interesting that it says, when you gather, I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the same way we pray in the name of Jesus The same way we gather in the name of Jesus, we are to, in the name of Jesus, disciple one who is caught in sin. We are saying we agree with Jesus Christ that your sin is offensive to God and it needs to be repented of. By tolerating a person's sin, you are putting their soul at risk. Gather together in the name of Christ and deliver him over to Satan if he will not listen to you for the destruction of his flesh. Now this does not mean that the disciplined person does not come to church anymore because they still need to sit under God's word. They still need to hear the word of God being preached for it is by the preaching of the gospel that the hearts will be softened as the spirit works and repentance take place. But it does mean that they can no longer commune with us. They can no longer share around the Lord's table with us. Our fellowship with them is now an intentional fellowship. We're not just best friends with people who are living in unrepentant sin. Our friendship or our fellowship with them is for the sake of the gospel. Whenever I have a conversation with this person, I am thinking I need to share the gospel. I need to share the gospel that they may be restored by this we are protecting the person from a false sense of assurance that they'll feel in fellowship the prayer that as we do this is that the loss of fellowship 
and the possible battering of the body by Satan could draw them back to Christ. Church, we should not sweep immorality under the rug. Instead, we should put it under the blood. The goal of all discipline is so that, as the Apostle Paul says, his spirit may be saved on the last, sorry, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. If anyone listens, sorry, if anyone listens, you, ooh, sorry. Jesus also says, if he listens to you, you have saved your brother. Paul, in Galatians chapter 6, says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transaction, you who are spiritual should do what? Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The goal is always restoration because the person is currently blinded by sin. Church, it is the loving thing to do to put an unrepentant member under church discipline. D.A. Carson writes this, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, delight in the Lord. Rather, we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking. We have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. The writer to the Proverbs in chapter 15, verses 10 and 12 says, there is, severe, sorry, there is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Verse 12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. Church, we will only create a godly habit of graciously correcting people if we return to seeing sin as God did. We will later see in this letter that God hates immorality. In chapter 10, Paul is going to remind the church of what happened all the way back in the wilderness in the time of the nation Israel when they were about to receive the law from Mount Sinai. In verse 7 and 8, we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 10 that the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. In verse 8, it says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. What did they do? They created the golden calf. They created an idol at the foot of Mount Sinai and they said that this was the God that delivered them from Egypt. They went on to participate in sins of immorality like the pagans, including orgies. So God came down, and how did he respond to their, to their sins? Paul writes, 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10 says this, Now these things happened to them as an example. 
that they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The Bible is not shy on how God will deal with immorality. And these things were written for our instruction that we should cleanse ourselves from immorality as we wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ when on that day, praise the Lord, sin will finally be defeated and be no more. But till then, fight, fight against the flesh. You see, God in his, in his eternal decree had singled out the church, the universal church, to be a people consecrated for his glory. A holy people shining the light of God in a darkened world. A holy priesthood bringing people to Christ. This was supposed to be visibly portrayed in the local church. The local church is to be the lampstand in its city. So Corinth was to be a lampstand in, in, the church in Corinth was to be a lampstand in its city. So we need to guard from what happened to Corinth. They had their light covered by a blanket of sin. They were looked on as Corinthianized. Instead of impacting Corinth, they were influenced by the Corinthian culture. Tonight, church, we are also at great risk. Let us not think that this could not happen to us because we have the media communicating sexual taboos through its music, through its radio, television, its books, its social media, its magazines, and it goes to the place where, it, where it's almost with an indifferent attitude that we look at any of it. We are... And some already have been desensitized to the sinfulness of sin served to us by the world. And that's the danger. So what do you do when people come to you and say, don't judge me? Well, we'll have to explain the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction brings an atmosphere that says, trust God, believe God, repent of your sins and run to a merciful Savior. It brings with it a godly grief over sin that is, that is the waiting room leading to repentance. So that's our call. Convict people of their sin as the Spirit leads. But condemnation, on the other hand, condemnation leads to death. Condemnation is hopelessness. Condemnation says that you are not deserving of grace and that it is not what we are to do when we, uh, sorry, and this is not what we are to do when we point out sin in people's lives. We are to be pointing people to God. We are to be praying that they get a sense of holy grief that leads them to repentance because the world is removing the shock factor over sin and sin is easily received by us and consumed by us and before you you know it, it is shaping us. So we don't condemn people. Only God condemns. But that does not mean that we shouldn't point out sin in the lives of those whom we love. So the world has pacified our response to what God calls taboo. We're no longer shocked when we see men sleeping with men or women with women. 
It's normal that men and women are now changing their genders. It's almost expected for a marriage to be broken by immorality. It comes at no shock to us that siblings are breaking each other's marriages. It's no shock to us that teenagers are falling pregnant. It's no longer a shock to us that babies are being aborted to the pleasure of the world. And so, church, the clear warning in this passage is that there is a landslide of immorality that is currently going on in the world, and it will soon snowball into the church if we do not take action, if we do not guard ourselves. Hence Paul's last point, which I titled, A Principle Worth Learning. A Principle worth learning. Verse 6 says this, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven, that a little, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not of the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You'll notice that in our passage, there's no mention of the first two steps of church discipline that Christ gave in Matthew chapter 18. The question is why? Why didn't one person first go and talk to this man and say, brother, you are sinning, you need to repent? Why didn't one person go and take two or three witnesses and go to this brother and say, Brother, you're in sin, you need to repent. We don't have a straight answer. But we can speculate that it was because of the church's arrogance that no one was willing to go and tell the brother his fault. No one was willing to go with two or three witnesses because they were proud. And Paul says this is not good because one, sin is contagious. So you don't need a lot of yeast to bake a loaf of bread. It's a little leaven that leavens or grows the whole lump. The first principle for us to learn here tonight is that concern for our, our purity and, and preservation should engage us as a church to remove gross and scandalous sin. I do hope that you've picked up my intentionality throughout this passage to say unrepented sin. Unrepentant sin. I did this because not every sin is deserving of discipline because love covers a multitude of sins. But it is unrepentant sin that is deserving of discipline. The principle here is be watchful. Sin is contagious. Sin is catastrophic. Sin brings condemnation from God. Be watchful. The second thing, sin must be purged. Sin must be purged. Now Paul brings here the, the picture of the Passover. The Passover was the time when the Jews would prepare to eat unleavened bread. In preparing for the Passover, they would go through the whole house in search for the leaven to remove it from the house. Because leaven was a type or a symbol of sin. 
after they had removed all the leaven, they would make the bread for the Passover out of unleavened bread or flat bread. A commentator says this was a beautiful type because it pointed to Jesus, of which the Passover was a type. It pointed to Jesus being without sin, our Passover, our sacrifice, the spotless lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And so living would represent sin and the old life in sin. So Paul says, Purge out the living from the church that we might be a new lump as you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Christ, our Passover, the one in whom the whole Passover scene is fulfilled, the unleavened bread, the broken bread, and all the whole beautiful symbolism there, Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. So tonight, are you stuck in sin? Are you one who is currently living in unrepentant sin. My call to you is remember Christ. My call to you is come to Christ. It is this Christ who had fulfilled the whole law. His blood has covered your sin. His life was given so that you can have life in in his name. The call for you tonight is won't you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For in Jesus there is forgiveness of sin. If you are a believer and you see someone whom you love dearly in the body stuck in sin, the call is won't you graciously go and point out their sin using the word, remembering that the goal is for their restoration. So as we bow our heads to pray, I'd like to read a few questions for us to think about as you close your head and as you close your eyes and bow your head. A few questions for reflection. How do you respond after you sin? How do you respond after you sin? Do you feel godly grief that you have sinned against your heavenly Father? Do you repent of your sins? Do you run back to Christ and ask for mercy rather than wallowing in condemning thoughts? Can you receive mercy and cleansing and move on in obedience? This is godly conviction that leads to joy. If God has brought to surface any sin in your heart tonight or any sins, won't you confess them tonight? Won't you bring them before the throne of Christ and ask for his forgiveness?
So Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for a godly community. Thank you, Father, for the local church and how, Lord, it is not only the vehicle that you're using to, Lord, call man back to yourself, but, Lord, it's the vehicle that you're using to sanctify us. God, as we gather together as a body in fellowship, God, we encourage each other in the word. Lord, we encourage each other as we sing in song. God, we, we mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. God, we share all those one another passages together. But God, we, we also Lord, discipline those who are found in sin for the sake of their souls. So God, I do pray that we may be a church that, that cares not just with our words, but also with our actions. Lord, it's hard. Lord, I can confess it's hard sometimes to go and tell someone that, Lord, you have noticed that they've been found in sin. But, God, I pray that my love for them Lord, would surpass, Lord, my fear of maybe the reaction of my own reputation, that, God, I want to care for them well and, Lord, lead them back to you. So, God, we pray even as we often sing the song tonight, we say, God, we bow our hearts and we bend our knees. Spirit, we pray that you'd come and make us humble. Turn our eyes from evil things. O oh Lord, we cast down our idols. So God, my prayer tonight is that you would give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.